Hey everyone, it's Jeff from Modern Combat and Survival. Recent events have revealed to us that the concept of living under a state of martial law isn't just some plot line for a box office movie thriller. It's here, it's now, and it's only getting worse. But I can tell you this, the answer is not to go and grab your AR-15 and stand watch at your front door, ready to take on the mobs of government stormtroopers. Your defense plan needs to be much smarter than that. And that's why I was so excited to get my buddy Ox to join me for this week's special episode. Ox is a guy who really walks his talk, and I know you're going to get a lot out of his advice. So, go ahead and check this out now. If bullets were flying, your adrenaline surging, would you hit your target? If the world as you know it crumbled tomorrow, collapsed into chaos, you know how to survive? If you and those you loved were cornered by a gang, violently attacked, could you protect them? Could you protect them? Could you protect them? Firearms training, urban survival, close quarters combat. This, this is another podcast to help you better prepare for any threat you may face in your role as a protector and a patriot. This is Modern Combat and Survival. By definition, martial law is when ordinary law is temporarily or even permanently suspended and military or other authoritative force takes over with whatever rules are seen as necessary for the crisis. Now, while the term martial law gets thrown around as a conspiracy theory buzzword that could never happen in the good old USA, the fact is certain elements of martial law have already taken place and seem to be on the verge of becoming a new norm in response to protests and the aftermath of disasters. Now, as most survivalists know, when the world around us crumbles into the civil disorder, it's nice to have a well-armed and well-trained police force able to rein in the looters and anarchists. However, In our quest for self-reliance and the freedom to defend ourselves and those that we love, we would like to be put in the other column on that clipboard and left alone so that we can do what we know how to do without government interference. Unfortunately, that's not an easy task. And in reality, if our preparations have already placed us on some government registry, it could even put us in a different other column on a clipboard, one that actually makes us a target for law enforcement. Therefore, it's critical you, as a fellow patriot, understand how to protect yourself from the violent effects of civil disorder while simultaneously shielding yourself from the heavy hand of a martial law takeover by the government, military, or a militarized police force. And that's what we're here to talk about today in this week's MCS podcast. Hello, everyone. This is Jeff Anderson, editor of Modern Combat and Survival Magazine, with another survival podcast to help you better prepare for any threat you may face in your role as a protector and a patriot. And joining us today to discuss planning your own martial law survival plan is a good friend of mine, Ox, who really, truly walks the talk when it comes to survival and firearms. Ox, welcome to the program, brother. Thank you very much, Jeff. Uh, listen, I always, I always look forward to getting on the phone and recording our conversations. That's fine because I wish everything that we were talking about just personally, I could get out to other people. So I'm glad I've, I've finally got you being recorded right now. Uh, listen, Ox is very tied into the Alphabet Agency crowd on the Intel side and has worked with several representatives on joint tactical programs such as the best-selling book, Tactical Firearms Training Secrets, Dry Fire Training Cards, the Force Recon Pistol Course, and the Navy SEAL Concealed Carry Master's Course. He's also a competitive pistol shooter and an avid hunter and an outdoorsman, and he's continuously sought out for advice and consulting by strategic planners at the Pentagon, as well as special operations personnel from the U.S. and allied countries and U.S. tactical law enforcement personnel. And you can find out more about Ox and his training at www dot tactical shooting secrets dot com. Ox, there's a there's a lot of speculation about what martial law will actually look like after a collapse. So what would you say are like the biggest myths of living during a militarized period and what's the reality of what people could possibly expect if a wide scale crisis were ever to trigger a period of martial law? Well that's a great question, Jeff. And there's no there's no clear cut answer to it and the reason is we've got 800,000 law enforcement in the U.S., and they span the the gamut from people who are used to dealing with far, firearms owners in a positive light on a daily basis to officers in places like D.C. and Chicago and even L.A. to a certain extent where if somebody's got a gun, it's because they're a bad guy. And so... There isn't a one-size-fits-all answer, but there are several um, 
generalizations or principles that that people can follow. But um, I, I want to cover a few of the different kinds of, of law enforcement. And one of the easiest ways to do this is to take a look back at what happened after Katrina. And uh, again, there were stories that were accurate of law enforcement doing bad things. Uh, there really weren't too many stories about law enforcement doing good things because it just isn't newsworthy. It's not outrageous. It's not a violation of rights. And so it's not covered. But um, we had a mix of uh, local law enforcement who were leaving their jobs in mass, just not showing up to work. We had law enforcement, law enforcement from California who um, they weren't used to dealing with people with firearms. People with firearms are bad. So the way you make things safe is you take away everyone's guns. And they did. They took away uh, one famous example is they uh, pretty much broke into a house of a little old lady and took her revolver. And um, it wasn't legal. It wasn't right. And, but they did it because that was what they were used to doing. It was the laws in their area made that all make sense. Um, you had law enforcement from states who were used to interacting with responsibly armed people. And there wasn't a problem there. There were neighborhoods, uh, common friends of ours, of yours and mine, Jeff. Uh, there were people who, um, they were fully armed in their, in their neighborhood. They had rotating watches. They had armed checkpoints. And they interacted in a positive way with law enforcement on a daily basis. Law enforcement left them alone because they knew that they had stuff under control and um, that neighborhood taking care of itself let law enforcement take care of problems in other places. And um, the other thing was there were officers from all walks who were being fed the storyline that everyone in New Orleans had turned violent. And in reality, it was primarily gang members and other career criminals. But they were coming into the city and they were being told something. And that was the lens that they were looking at everything through. And that was what they were basing their decisions on. It happened to be very, very wrong. But if it would have been right, if the intel would have been right, their choices would have been right. Uh, only with um, the benefit of hindsight can we see that they were fed bad intel and they made uh, choices that didn't end up being correct. But they didn't know that at the time. And um, because of all this and because of the fact that any negative story about law enforcement gets a ton of media coverage. There's a trap that some people fall into that they shouldn't trust law enforcement. And I, I work with law enforcement on a daily basis. Um, there's good law enforcement officers and bad law enforcement officers. And that's the way it is with any segment of the population, especially a, a segment of the population that's 800,000 people. That's complicated by the fact that whether these officers um, lean towards being for people being responsible and prepared or view that as a threat, they work for bureaucracies. And that introduces problems into the mix that um, that complicate things even more. So um, all of that to say, we're going to cover principles here, and we're going to talk about things that will work in a, in a broad range of, uh, of situations. Now, the second misconception is that all martial law is a sign of control. And that's really not the case here. In the U.S., martial law is normally an indication that control has been lost and someone in a political position is trying to do damage control to uh, protect their career. And so what they do is they decide to uh, impose martial law or curfews, which are kind of a different flavors of the same thing until they can restore order. And, uh, I have to say it in some cases it's probably the right move. It's the, the quickest way and the least painful way to get from a time of chaos to a time of order. And a great example would be riots after national sporting championships doesn't need to be a, a curfew over the whole city, but a curfew in the area where people are shooting at each other and burning things up and breaking uh, windows and just generally causing 
random destruction or targeted destruction, I kind of like getting that stop. The third misconception is that all martial law, uh, that all martial laws are created equal. And that's kind of ambiguous, <laughs> but. <laughs> I like so, that. So, <laughs> yeah. If a short-term situation arises again where a, a mayor imposes a curfew because of riots after a national championship, um, that's something where law enforcement and the general population have the same end goal in mind. They just want to get life back to normal. They don't want the turds acting like turds, and they want to get on with their life. That is completely different than a situation where Let's say there's a terrorist attack and it knocks out our, our economy, our, our ability to do electronic commerce, or there's an attack on the utility grid and a foreign country, let's say Russia or China comes in to quote unquote help us, uh, restabilize. That martial law is completely different. That martial law has the people in charge or the people imposing it at diametrically opposed to the general population. And one of the big mistakes that people make is they equate all curfews and all martial laws with each other. And this is kind of complicated by by Boston. What happened in Boston was the Boston bombing. not good. Yeah, after the Boston bombing, yeah. the Boston Marathon bombing. <clears throat> yeah, there were uh, civil rights were violated. It was not a good way to get to the end that they were trying to get to, but they did it. And, um, that's going to hurt people's impression of law enforcement for, for quite some time. And I think it's a, a continual effort on the part of guys like you and me and on, on the part of law enforcement to make it clear to people, uh, what side they're on, um, that they're on the side of law and order and they're not on the side of going in and, uh, busting into people's houses and, uh, making life difficult for the average citizen. And the majority of law enforcement are, are I mean, that's, that's their take. That's, that's where they're at. So it's just yeah. a matter of getting the, the message out there. Yeah. And, and you strike a lot of, um, a lot of familiar chords there. And that's one of the reasons why I really, I wanted to reach out to you on this topic because there has been a lot of media play over uh, different elements of martial law that have already taken place in response to protests and things like that. And I guess, you know, there's a human side to all of this. It's it's really easy to armchair quarterback something from what you're watching over the news, which is oftentimes trying to sensationalize things, at the same time trying to be responsible and cover civil liberties infringement that's going on at the same time. And so to kind of paint the what-you-can-expect sort of a picture, things that we have seen recently that um, in some in some cases are very – you know, like I said, are, are there to to put law and order in place are things like, um, you know, curfews. Uh, after the Ferguson riots, there was even like a you're not allowed to stand. So there was a law putting in that you weren't allowed to congregate and stay in one place. So people reacted by just continuously walking around. Door to door searches for like during the Boston bombing, people they were they would go by and they would they were looking for a bomber and obviously that's it's in my best interest for law enforcement to find that bomber and if he's in hiding in the house next to mine and he's got another bomb of course I want him you know taken care of um but i guess it's it's part of that it's a whole human factor of it's stressful especially if you're looking at like a collapse or a, a breakdown in civil order it's stressful for everybody and law enforcement are not these super gods who are going to always know what to do and what not to do. And so we need to know how to work with them, how to protect our families, but also protect our rights so that if they, if they are overzealous or if they, you know, they are fueled by um, that us versus them mentality, that we also protect ourselves and our rights as well. So uh, I know we're going to get into a lot more of that as well. So let me, you know, actually this kind of, this, brings us into, I guess, my perfect next question, which is, you know, in an environment where all the enemy looks alike and military and, and law enforcement officers could become overzealous and hassling citizens, and, I, and I've seen this myself, like, in combat with, with military. So I know the mentality. I know when it gets to that point when it's, like, it's very hard to differentiate between 
who's on your side and who's not on your side. So when that happens, what would you say are maybe the three best strategies for residing in an area, like being a resident in an area during a period of martial law without drawing attention to yourself or being tagged as a problem by law enforcement? Yeah, that's that's another great question. And it it really depends on the nature of the martial law and how long it is. But in general, if law enforcement doesn't see you, there's little chance of them seeing you as a bad guy. And the best way to stay invisible is to stay home or stay wherever you're at. And uh, what that means, though, is that you need to have everything that you might need for a few days or a few weeks in your home ahead of time so that you don't have to leave. You don't have to go down to the corner store three times a day for for food or snacks or uh which is oftentimes you on a normal basis. Which is often you know forced to. Yeah, and we talk about that all the time. Like that's the worst place you want to go anyway. You know, where right. the store shelves could be bare and then people are upset or, you know, whatever. There's there's places you don't want to be because those are tinder boxes for, you know, potential you know, unrest. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I suggest, and uh, it's been picked up by a few other bloggers, and that's to prepare to feed and support the families of your local law enforcement after a disaster. And it's really pretty simple, but if officers know that their families are being taken care of and they know that they will be able to eat, it stacks a deck in your favor that they'll make better decisions. And there's a couple of reasons for it. And most basic is people make better decisions when their blood sugar levels are normal rather than low. And second, tyrants have used food as leverage to get, well, everyone, but law enforcement in particular, to do their bidding for generations. And morals and ethics and laws get very malleable very quickly when hunger's put into the equation. And if there's a situation where you know officers are being told to do things that are against their oath and moral compass, do what you can to give them the tools that they need to make good decisions, whether it's uh, food or water or uh, taking care of things so that they can rest when they're off duty or uh, giving them confidence to know that their family is being taken care of. Is there a... Um... Some people that are maybe listening to this really don't have friends or how, like, how would somebody approach that in their area to be able to plan ahead? I mean, we do talk about survival teams, right? We talk about that within, within the context of a survival plan, like having other people as part of your, your survival group, your mutually, mutual uh, assistance group to be able to weather things together, like be able to rely on other people with other skills and certainly Military, somebody with military experience or even active law enforcement experience, especially if they're the ones involved with keeping law and order, um, that's a valuable person to have, period. But I guess especially even so during martial law for the reasons that you're, you're stating. So, um, one of the, I think always one of the challenges to that is like, how do I find somebody for, you know, that I can help that would be of that mindset? You know, that's a, that's a tall order, but do you have any tips for anybody of, of where they could kind of make that connection? It a lot depends on your where you're at in life and your and your lifestyle. If you go to church, seek out law enforcement that goes to your church. If you have kids, uh seek out uh parents who are at activities that you're at who are law enforcement. And one thing that I've done is I've paid in almost every city in the states that have concealed carry licenses, there are law enforcement who do dirt cheap uh, concealed carry classes. And I've taken dirt cheap concealed carry classes where, I mean, it sounds bad to say, but where my, my point in going wasn't to learn anything from the class. My point in going was having a reason to spend a good chunk of time with law enforcement in a new area. And it's a good way to have something in common with them. And you're going to have time to interact with them at breaks. And um, anytime you start a relationship like that, uh, sometimes you're going to meet other officers through them. Sometimes you're not. But the more nets you throw out, the more fish you're going to catch. Yeah. 
point. And uh, that's always been something in my mind that was that was very worth doing, both because I'm pro law enforcement and I want to support them, but on a uh, just a pragmatic side, I want to be seen as one of the good guys if something bad happens. I want them to know me. I don't want to be an unknown. I want them to not only recognize me, but get a little shot of dopamine when they see me because they know um, they know uh, who I am. Well, it's so counterintuitive, counterintuitive to, I think, the way a lot of people are thinking these days in that us versus them mentality. But it's a much smarter way to approach the problem from you know from a let's let's get through it standpoint. We're here with Ox of TacticalShootingSecrets.com. We'll be back here in just a minute with more strategies for protecting yourself and your family during a period of martial law during a crisis, including how to deal with door-to-door searches and, of course, the ever-dreaded gun confiscation. But first, here's a special message we'd like you to hear. In any disaster, crisis, or attack, your life and the life of those you love could solely rest on the survival gear you've acquired. Do you have the proper gear to protect you from the threats you'll face? Whether it's preparing your home against the destruction and mayhem of a city in chaos, or you're bugging out to a safer location when a natural disaster forces you from your home, the supplies you have right now could ensure your survival or seal your fate. Don't take the risk. Claim your free copy of our exclusive guide, Survival Gear Secrets, at survivalgearsecrets.com and discover the seven-phase survival gear plan every family must prepare for or face the consequences. Five no-bullshit warning signs that a collapse is headed your way, so you're already in action long before your neighbors even know what hit them. And how to know exactly when it's safer to stay at home and shelter in place. Or get in the family bug out mobile and get the hell out of Dodge. Your fellow citizens may be fine with sleeping in a crowded stadium waiting for FEMA to hand them a granola bar, juice box, and a blankie. But you know that no one can protect your family better than you can. If you're properly prepared with the right supplies and equipment to ensure your survival. Don't wait until it's too late. Find out what's missing from your survival gear plan by grabbing your free copy of Survival Gear Secrets now at www.survivalgearsecrets.com. And now, back to our show. Okay, we're back with Ox of TacticalShootingSecrets.com talking about how you can prepare yourself and your family to survive during a period of imposed martial law during a crisis. Now, Ox, few people realize that there are already laws in place that allow police to enter your home if they feel that there's imminent danger to the occupants. And we saw this even during the Boston bomber manhunt where teams of police went door to door, forcing their way into citizens' homes and and pulling them out with their hands up, even though they hadn't done anything wrong. As a survivalist and, and as a tactical thinker, it would seem to be a legitimate fear that once your home is entered, the cat is out of the bag on your level of preparedness, such as like, you know, that you can see food and water supplies or maybe even even firearms and ammunition. What's the best way to protect your privacy and keep your level of preparedness a secret when potentially facing a home occupation from military law enforcement who are out sniffing around for potential threats and troublemakers? That's a, another great question, um, and that's a really frustrating scenario. Uh, Boston was just plain embarrassing. The, the state trooper who leaked the picture of the bomber faced disciplinary action, but to this date, I don't think any of the officers who forced their way into houses without warrants did. And they did a lot to hurt the relationship between law enforcement and the public way beyond Boston. And it hurt law enforcement across the country. And But at the same time, uh, you mentioned something that there's a tremendous lesson in. And that was that law enforcement was escorting people, escorting innocent people out of their own homes with their hands up. And what I want to bring up is the fact that uh, your mind, especially when you get tired or when you get stressed, it executes a script. And law enforcement doesn't train for getting good, innocent, non-threatening people out of their houses on a regular basis. What they do is they go out and they get bad people who are a threat out of their houses on a regular basis. And even if the particular officer isn't doing it on a regular basis, that's what they practice. Uh, they don't practice a situation like what happened in Boston. Uh, they practice going into a house with bad guys and getting them out. And so what they did was they defaulted to their training. And their training was uh, go into the house, get the person in a compliant, um, or get them out of the house in a 
as compliant of a way as possible, and that was with their hands up. Uh, I'm just glad that they didn't cuff more innocent people than they did in getting them out of their house. But they were just playing a track in their mind. They were they were going through a programmed response. They trained and trained and trained, and um, they weren't able to, not all of them were able to adjust on the fly. And um, so if you're in a situation like that, it's important to understand that law enforcement doesn't go out and purposely interact with good people on a regular basis. They go out and they purposely interact with turds. And all of their conditioned responses are for dealing with turds. So the less you do or say to convince them that you're a turd, the better off you're going to be. Um, because they'll, they'll just start executing their, uh, their normal conditioned responses. And that's what keeps them alive. I mean, it's not a, it's not an all good or all bad thing. It's, uh, the condition responses are good for most of the situations that they're in. And, um, but getting back to the, the core question, uh, yeah, I agree. You don't, you don't want to advertise how much food or guns that you've got in a door to door search situation. And, um, especially not one where things might be taken for the good of the community. And that wouldn't be so much like the, the Boston bombings, but in a, a longer term door to door search. And, um, one way to do this, uh, ironically is to have guests over to your house as often as possible. And, um, a lot of people think you don't want to have people over to your house if you've, if you've got food storage and if you've got guns and if you've got other stuff. But if, if you take that approach of, uh, insulating yourself from people as much as possible, then when somebody does come in the house, um, they're going to see a lot of stuff that you probably don't want them to see. But if you have people in your house as often as possible, then, and you prepare the house so that they only see what you want them to see, and they only see things that tell the story that you want them to hear, then um, you're already going to be 80% of the way ready for a door-to-door search. Um, and if a door-to-door search does happen, uh, there's a few things to keep in mind. And one is that officers will have searched several houses before yours and or they'll know that they've got several more houses to search after yours. And they're going to be a little bit amped up or burned out depending on um, how long they've been doing the searches. And they're going to want to look behind every door and they're either going to completely ignore you or try and read you for tells that you're hiding something or someone. And um, it's important to realize that at the end of the day, they, they just want to go home at night. Right? They want to go out. They want to do good. Um, they want to catch the bad guy and they want to go home at night and they want to go home with the same number of holes that they left with. And um, they're going to do what they need to do. And if you appear as a threat to them, they're going to respond as if you're a threat. Um, if you're nonchalant and you have uh, positioned stuff in your house um, so that people don't see uh, a ton of food storage or 20 guns in your living room, then it's not going to be near as big of a deal if law enforcement has to commit. Um, but it's all about, it's all about pre-planning. And, you know, I'll tell you, Jeff, one of the best things that's happened to us in this respect has been babysitters and house sitters. And for a long time, we, we were in the boat that didn't want anyone to come in our house. And we're like, this is just kind of ridiculous. We're becoming a prisoner to our preparedness. And we switched tacks and said, okay, let's make stuff so that we can have anyone in our house at a moment's notice and not have a concern about what they'll see or what picture it paints. And it's not only been freeing and, uh, and great. It's, um, it's put us in a much, much better situation if we were ever in, um, if we ever found ourselves in a, a door-to-door search and kind of along those lines, depending on where you live, if you have a home alarm and it goes off and law enforcement responds, uh, depending on the situation and where you're at, they are required to go through your house and make sure that everything's safe and that it was a false alarm. So even if you don't invite people in, even if your plan is to talk to law enforcement through a door or outside and not let them into the house, there could still be legitimate reasons for them to be in your house and and not malicious reasons at all um, for them to be in your house and looking around. You know, those are some great points. And I guess, you know, the other thing is that it, it really, it's a great filter to look at your at your home through as as somebody who is more prepared. So, 
you know, like for example, if you just if you look at the difference between, um, you see lots of these these uh, food pantries online, like you know the prepper pantries, and you see just rows and rows of two by four shelves filled with 327 you know rolls of toilet paper and you know gas masks are hanging off of the off of the hangers and then there's just like canned goods forever and ever and ever um you know that versus having like freeze-dried foods in in containers like stackable plastic containers that look like something that you could be putting christmas ornaments in you know um having those stacked up somewhere in in storage um, is is less obvious than when they somebody comes into your house and they go down in the basement or the police go down in the basement and they see all of that food just as far as the eye can see. Um, even if the even if you're not like turned in or if you're suspected, your neighbors that know that or law enforcement knows that if they if things in your area continue to get bad and food becomes scarce, even if it's just scarce for that officer that went down in the basement. When they're looking to feed a family, it's going to instantly come to the mind like, well, you know, the Red Cross station is low on food, but, you know, Joe Schmo over on Johnson Street, he's got a whole basement full of food that I know he's not going to need. So I'm going to go over and, hey, remember me and have my badge out. So, you know, it really, it, it forces you to look at your house differently. We look at this like also with home defense. It's like, look at your house as if you were a criminal. Like, how would you break into your house? I guess what you know what you're saying mm-hmm. as well is look at your house from the standpoint of somebody who would maybe want those supplies. Like how can you be more covert about it and, and looking at it through that lens? So that makes a lot of sense. You know, Ox, uh, we we do talk about the the prospect of gun confiscation, and I think this is becoming more and more of a, of an issue because we are seeing how government is stepping into you know, in their intelligence role, gathering more information on people who are more prepared. There have been there have been acts put through Congress that have allowed this to be easier. There was recently, you know, one thing I'm thinking of is recently one gun owner in New York State was forced to turn over 165 records for um, rifles that people had purchased because there was a there was a problem. There was a technicality with one of the weapons that was changed afterwards, but it was found and and they found out where this guy purchased the rifle from and they went to that gun store owner and he was literally just forced to hand over record records so that they could confirm the legality of the rifles that were done so you know if they want the information they're going to get the information and if you're on that clipboard of you know if, if there's a a concern for law and order to the point where they feel like certain people might be more of a threat your goal is to stay off of that threat but Let's say worst case scenario, okay? The knock comes at your door and you're facing an officer there or a soldier with a clipboard telling you to hand over your firearms. What's the best way to deal with the authorities you're faced with and still have a fighting chance to keeping the weapons that you'll need to keep you and your family safe? Like I'm not of the mindset of, you know, you'll pry my AR-15 out of my cold dead fingers. So what is a, a better response that protects your rights and yet you know, it doesn't make you a target or get you hauled off to, to jail. Yeah, that's um, that's a concern not only for uh, gun owners, but also for law enforcement. Uh, because uh, in other countries, uh, privately owned guns have been taken away from law enforcement and they were only able to have a gun when they were on duty. And so it's... Um, it, it, that's a, and it's especially a big deal for for military in the U.S. Um, so it's a it's a huge issue. And there's basically three courses of action: uh, comply, resist, or use jujitsu. And let's start with the the cold dead fingers resisting. <laughs> and um, you can actually go one step lighter than that. And depending on the situation, you can start by telling the officer that you're claiming your Fourth Amendment rights. And we'll be happy to comply and ask him for his written search warrant. Um, that really depends on the situation. In something like Boston, uh, that's not going to end well. Um, that you would be labeled a troublemaker and handled uh, handled in a not so gentle way. Um, th- there's a lot of cases where that wouldn't work. There are some cases where it would, and so it's it's good to have that in your back pocket. But um, as far as physically resisting law enforcement. Um, if you go down that route, you're, you're, the end is the same. It just depends on how long it's going to take to get there. Uh, you will lose. Uh, local law enforcement can escalate to SWAT, which can uh, escalate to regional unit or county sheriff or state police or FBI, but the end result is going to be the same. It's, it's going to end badly for you. And it's just, it's a no, there's,
there's no winning uh, for people who go that who go that route. I think one of the important points about that also is that while it may boost your ego or your patriotic pride or whatever to be to be that resisting force and and standing up for your rights, when you're hauled off, and that is a when, it's not an, it's not an if, it's not like oh, okay, you're a patriot, we'll leave you alone. When you're hauled off, that means that there's nobody there to protect your family. And so right. it's going to, it's going to feel much, much worse. I mean, your pride might take a little bit of a, of a shrapnel wound if you give in the law enforcement or if we, if we, if we comply as you're about to talk about. Um, but you'll be in your living room feeling that little shrapnel in your pride versus being in a jail cell or a detention center somewhere hoping because you don't have communication with your family hoping that they're going to be okay and they're not going to be subject to looters or anything else that's out there and not have you to protect them and be where you should be. Yeah, it's it's just, it's a lose-lose option. Yeah. And uh, once things start going that way, if it keeps escalating, there's no way for it to end well. Um, but looking at complying, it's it, it might be better depending on the situation, but if you invite them in and give them what they want and um, decide to be happy with what they leave you, uh, that that could end very badly too. Uh, again, it depends on how long the situation is. And uh, In New Orleans, people did not get their guns back. Uh, many, many people did not get their guns back. Some did. Uh, if they did get them back, a lot of them were rusted and corroded beyond use. And um, in a limited food supply situation, uh, you're, you've just changed yourself from being semi-self-reliant to being uh, completely dependent on the collective. And that's not something that most people want. So um, the third option is uh, jujitsu. And basically, you give the appearance of complying. and um, But at the same time, you keep your food, guns, and ammo, and whatever else in multiple locations. And you give up or let them find one Possibly two of the locations, and um, you know that when they leave, uh, you're gonna ha- you're still gonna have stuff. And what it comes down to is, uh, let's say a, you've got a scenario where you've got uh, your best friend who's an officer who comes to the door, and he um, has a team of guys with him, and he's got a clipboard, and you're marked down as a gun owner, and he's got a boss that he has to answer to, and if he comes in and doesn't leave with any guns, uh, he's gonna pay for it. So. He needs a reason to be able to check the box, and you can give him that reason in in the form of uh, one or more guns that you're willing to get rid of. Uh, not that you want to get rid of them, but that you're willing to get rid of to um, to make the problem go away, or really it's kicking the can down the road and hoping that things stabilize um, instead of escalating. But um, again, when you look at the options, it, it's not a great option. It's just the least bad option. And um, same thing with food. If um, if you if people know that you buy a lot of food or um, have some reason to think that, uh, if they find a uh, a stash of a week of food, that might be enough to make them happy and check their box and go away and uh, take the the crosshairs off of your back and turn it from a potentially uh, bad interaction into one where you look like a good guy. And again, it's it's not just the guy who's at your door. It's um, you also look like a good good guy to the people who he reports to. Yeah. So I guess, it, you know, it makes sense to this is a good reason, I guess, to have some inexpensive firearms available rather than, you know, handing over your, you know, your your nickel plated desert desert eagle 50 caliber that cost you, you know, uh, mm-hmm. a month's worth of, uh, of salary. And, um, but being able to, cause I think if, if you, if you let them find stuff, it's like, okay, what else are you hiding? But I guess, you know, in my mind, if you, if you hand over an inexpensive revolver, so to speak, or, or, or an inexpensive hunting rifle that you have, or whatever they ask, if they say you have a hunting rifle or something, um, even be able to tell them, well, wait a minute, you know, kind of putting up a fight, not like, okay, here you go. But because that, that kind of might seem a little bit weird, like, why are you just handing it over when other, everybody else is fighting about it? But to kind of give them like a little bit of resistance, like, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's, that's the only, that's the only rifle I've got. How am I going to protect my family? You know, and, and that kind of feigned um, resistance with compliance seems it might send that kind of subconscious signal of, well, this is, you know, this person's putting up a fight because this really is the only thing that he has. But 
you know, and you can even maybe tell them that, you know, I sold my other two rifles or I gave them out to my brother-in-law or something like that and I don't have them. So it's kind of like giving them a little bit of the, of the, um, something to go away with, but kind of keeping in their minds, che- keeping you checked off of the, the clipboard not to come back. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's, that's what my thinking is. Because <laughs> I, like, I, I do worry about this stuff, you know, especially since, you know, obviously everything's registered or whatever, but, but, you know, I mean, then it comes down to where, where to put this stuff. So I guess that goes into our, our final question. So let me ask you, assuming that you still want to keep your guns rather than turn them over to law enforcement. So you have multiple guns and you're willing to, to part with one of them, but you want to hold on to the other ones during a time of martial law. What are maybe the three best ways to hide your guns to avoid confiscation in a house-to-house search? Yeah, that's, that is a tough one. Um, and one of the reasons is because almost all of what will happen to you after a martial law situation is going to be determined by what you do before the martial law situation goes into effect. And it, one of the things is it comes back to relationships again. If you are known to the law enforcement in your area, uh, you're going to get treated differently. It, that's just the way it is. Whether that's good, whether that's bad, uh, that's the way it is. And it's one of the, the highest leverage things that you can do is um, be somebody that they associate. Uh, you want a little positive mark next to your face when they look at you. You don't want a... Uh, a negative mark or a a big red warning sign above your head when your local law enforcement looks at you. You don't want to be a threat. You want to be an ally, a friend, or seen as one. Um, and uh, that that's just that, such a big thing. And um, it, I mean, it makes a difference every day in um, uh, traffic stops and speeding. If um, if you get stopped by somebody who you know, they might still need to give you a ticket, but it might not be for uh, as much as you were really going over, or they might give you a warning instead of a ticket. But uh, uh, that being said, there are several scenarios where local law enforcement could be shifted to other cities, towns, counties, etc., specifically to avoid this dynamic. And, um, uh, so, so relationships aren't always enough in, in most cases they're going to be, but in, in, in extreme cases, they may not be. And, uh, keep in mind that not all searches are the same. And in addition to wanting to get home at night safely, officers are going to want to get the most bang for their buck in terms of, in terms of time and effort. And what this means is if you don't look like a, a fat target, they're probably not going to come in with sledgehammers, ground-penetrating radar, and an excavator. They're going to do a light search, be happy, and be gone. Um, so the way that you want to hide things, and these are these are kind of generalities because uh, uh, caching is incredibly uh, individual in um, how you do it and what options are available depending on where you live and the terrain and weather and everything else. But first, uh, focus on strategies and techniques that will protect you from thieves as well as confiscation. And in general, this means uh, hiding things in plain sight, and it means multiple locations. And so uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, a lot of people buy a big safe. And I have a big safe. I love my big safe. But it is a, um, people know that there are high density valuables in a safe, or they assume that there are high density valuables in a safe. And they will do what they need to do to you or your family to get into the safe, regardless of what's in it. Um, a better, different approach is to have things in multiple locations that are not visible, uh, either hidden in in walls, and it doesn't have to be in an incredibly extreme way, but in walls, in an attic, uh, under cupboards, or in um, 
uh, dead corners in covered space, uh, basically different places around the house where uh, the architecture of your house house leaves a void and you can put stuff in there. Uh, carry that outside of your house or where you live and um, the world opens up considerably. There's tons of places that you can put stuff outside, but the key is um, if you've got stuff in a few locations rather than all in one, uh, you're going to be much better off. And second, if you're trying to hide stuff, space and distance are friends. They're they're going to serve you very well. And what I mean by that is if you've got, uh, let's say you decide that you want to hide stuff in the walls of your house, but instead of hiding stuff in different walls, you put them all behind the same wall just between different studs. Or, yeah. And um, what that's going to mean is that there's a, a really good chance that if somebody finds one of the caches, they're going to find all of the caches. So the more space and distance you have between caches, the less likely it is that you'll get completely wiped out. It could mean that it's more likely that any that one will get found, but um, it'll be less likely that you get completely wiped out. And the third is, third thing is to consider layering caches. And I'll give you an example from uh, laying outdoor caches. Let's say you've got your your real cache and it's a 55-gallon drum and you dig a hole and you bury it. And then as you're burying it, you uh, put a foot or two of dirt on top of it. And then you put an ammo box with some other good cash stuff in it, but not near as valuable as what's in the 55-gallon drum. And then you finish covering the hole. Then if um, it happens to be found and people dig down and they get the ammo box, there's a really, really good chance that they're going to stop there. They're going to think, oh my gosh, we found the cash. Let's go on and see if we can find another one. They're not going to dig down to the real one. And that's called a decoy cache, and you can use it um, you can use it inside, outside, in uh, a lot of different situations. It's more the the principle that I wanted to cover. But um, yeah, really, it's uh, it kind of goes back to not being seen. Uh, that's one of the best ways to uh, to make sure that you're able to keep your stuff through a martial law situation or a house to house search situation. Uh, don't make yourself look like a good target. Don't make yourself look like you're worth extra effort. And um, uh, be one of the good guys in advance. Well, and I think, and I think, in line with that is in you know one of the ways to hide your guns is to hide your identity that you're a an avid gun owner. You know, I mean, a lot of people have you know if, if police pull up into your driveway and they see that. You've got the jacked up four by four with the NRA stickers plastered all over it and the, you know, kill them all, let God sort them out bumper stickers. And then they go to your door and you've got a, we don't call 911 sign on the front door. And then you come to the door and you're dressed in your 511 tactical pants and your, your, you know, your tactical hat and your Oakley sunglasses and you look like a military contractor and you try to convince them, what? Guns? I don't have any guns. You know, it's it's obvious. I mean, you still have like the gunpowder on your fingertips and stuff. So, you know, it's like they're not stupid. So if you if it if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's probably a damn duck. And so it always kills me how a lot of survivalists and 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 patriots and however you want to you know term yourself think that when it comes to preparation mode or survival mode, that means that you don all the tactical equipment. And go out there and just look like a badass, which is 180 degrees from where you want to be if your true, if your true goal is to lay low and like you say, not be seen and not be seen as a threat, um, or as some wacko who was waiting for the end of times to come anyway, then that makes a, that makes a big difference in how you'll be treated and how, and whether or not you'll be there to protect your family during a period when there is martial law, you know? Yeah, one thing that's kind of important to realize on that is um depending on where you're at, the 
information collecting ability of law enforcement is mind-boggling. And it's incredibly difficult to be a gun owner and do anything with your guns and have it not be known. And so the the steps that you're talking about, I agree with 100%, but it's not so much because you're going to be able to hide much from law enforcement. It's that you're going to protect yourself from home invasions and, and theft. And um, it that's one part of it. The other part of it is there's almost as many guns as there are people in the U.S. And I know that they're, they're clustered so that, I mean, a lot of people own 10 and a lot of people own none. But uh, in a lot of areas of the country, it's more odd to not own a gun than to own a gun. And um, it's, uh, it, it's really important to stay invisible or uh, low profile. But um, in in a lot of parts of the country, that's going to help you more with theft than it is with um, uh, law enforcement or government agencies knowing that you are or are not a uh, a shooter. Yeah, yeah, that's practical. That's practical preparedness. Yeah. Well, Ox, I I really appreciate um, that you've helped me take a 15 minute interview and turn it into an hour. <laughs> it's just loaded. It's loaded with information. There's lots of great information there for people to to really take away and just put and, and reevaluate your own plan. We've gone over a lot of great tips for kind of looking at everything a little bit differently and preferably, or you know, I guess best put from the outside in and um, and rethinking maybe some of the things that you're doing and realizing that the time to prayer for this stuff is not in the middle of a crisis, but but actually right now. So um, so thank you so much for that. For that. I appreciate that. Uh, definitely go and check out more of Ox's training, his articles, and his books. He's got some amazing stuff. It's one of my favorite. Uh, I love his articles. I put them out to our our uh, readers uh, quite often and uh, with good reason. There's some great, great stuff over there. But the products that he has, the 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 program, the training programs, the DVDs, the training cards, are all in line with everything that we talk about when it comes to our own tactical firearms training. So definitely go check it out. Uh, his website is at www tacticalshootingsecrets.com and until our next Modern Combat and Survival podcast, this is Jeff Anderson saying train hard, stay safe, prepare now. This has been Modern Combat and Survival. Survival. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can help us out by rating our podcast on iTunes and leaving a comment. You can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Modern Combat and Survival. And don't forget to claim your free subscription to Modern Combat and Survival magazine at www.moderncombatandsurvival.com. Lock and load. And we'll see you next time. This has been Modern Combat and Survival.